Good morning one more time. <laughs> Some of you know that we have seven of our uh, grandsons in Brazil, South America. Two of them now have been in the States, one going to school, one working, but they're both now back with their other brothers and mom and dad. So all seven of the boys and mom and dad are, are enjoying a little bit of time uh, together. And I think they've kind of celebrated because they spent a, uh, a, a day or two uh, at the ocean. And at the ocean, they went, uh, they went fishing. They took a little boat out to the ocean. Obviously, there's no limit there, apparently, on how many fish, whatever. But I wanted you to see this. Uh, notice down in the left, that's just a plate of fresh uh, lobsters. Yeah. Amen to that. They knew Grandpa loved seafood, and they just sent these pictures to harass their grandfather. But I also wanted you to see that because they're, they're having quite a feast, are they not? And I wanted to remind you this morning, we have been having quite a feast. It's already been mentioned this morning of the feast that we've had on the doctrines and character and attributes of God. But I want to remind you also this morning that while we have been feasting on those attributes in the first hour, and it has touched our souls. We have also, in the second hour, then seen those attributes in flesh and life and in words and in actions in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is true about God is true about the God-man. And in the Gospels, we get to see those great truths about our God, unique only to him visible in the person and in the authority, the sovereign authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells us in the Gospel of John, at the end of the Gospel, that there are many other things. He says it twice at the end, at the end of 20 and 21. Many other signs, many other works that the Lord Jesus did. But then he says this, these, these I have given to you. These are written, and then he goes on to tell us the purpose, that you might believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, and believing that you might have the theme of the Gospel of John, that you might have life and everlasting life in the person of Christ. And today, we come to really the grand finale, so to speak, of the sign miracles. If you've not turned to John chapter 11 as of yet, I certainly want you to to get there, we don't want to get to that yet, so I'm going backwards, okay? To John chapter 11, we have in the sense of a, a, a grand finale as it is the last one, but also it is a supreme demonstration of Christ's omnipotent power in what? In raising Lazarus from the dead. And if there's ever a display of it. And each one of those particular seven of the sign miracles are re-emphasizing something that is true only about God. Turns the water to wine. Or he, he takes uh, five uh, fish and two loaves and he does a creation miracle. Or he shows his sovereign authority over the creation and, and he walks on the water. Or his power over 
over disease and affliction, and he comes to a, a man there that has been, uh, for some 38 years, has been a cripple, paralyzed, and he says, what to him? Take up your pallet, walk, boom, right now, there he goes. And in each one of those sign miracles is demonstrating to us, again, who this Christ is, the God-man, and his authority and his power that he is God in flesh, that he is the Son of God. In essence, the same of God in essence and in being and all that he, all that he claims and all that, that he does. Now, in just coming to this one in John chapter 11, and we're just going to introduce it today in the first few verses, but I want you to note a two-fold significance of raising Lazarus from the dead, just, just getting started a two-fold significance of this particular sign miracle and this demonstration of his omnipotence. And the first is that this demonstrates Christ's authority over man's greatest enemy. You say it again. Raising Lazarus from the dead is going to demonstrate Christ's absolute sovereign authority over man's greatest enemy. And what is that? It's death. It's death. Whereas by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It is that which took place in the garden, and it's going to impact all who will ever live, the face of this earth, the reality of, the, of that absolute enemy of all mankind, that that is the reality from sin, to experience death. So it demonstrates his authority over that very thing by showing that he has the power to give life. And that's the second thing of significance of raising Lazarus from the dead. It not only shows his authority over man's greatest enemy, but it authenticates his claims as being the source and the giver of life. Our greatest problem, the greatest solution in Jesus Christ and life. Chapter 10, verse 10, you know it by heart. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have, everybody say it, they may have, they may have life. Over in chapter 11, well, we're going to get there soon, but in verse 25, there he says it, that familiar statement. I am the resurrection and the life. 14, John 14, verse 6, you know it by heart. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the So here again, we see in this particular sign miracle, John is showing how Jesus is the ultimate giver and life, exclusive to him as the way, truth, and the life. Now, another important feature of all of this, all of these sign miracles that manifest Christ's divine nature and the authority that's given to him as Son of God is the reality that there's an old saying that goes this way, the same the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And in the midst of this incredible display of Christ's sovereign power and the reality of, yes, there's going to be those who believe at the same time that there's going to be those, likewise, that demonstrate the, the, just the absolute hardness of the human heart apart from the work of God in his grace in changing our hearts, 
to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you see that? Well, look back in chapter 10, verse 39, what was going on. Later in chapter 10, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. What was the response of the Jews? They took up stones in order to stone him. And notice in verse 39, it says, Therefore they were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. We get over in chapter 11, after this great sign miracle, of course, all of the Pharisees and all of the Sadducees and all of the scribes, they all believe upon Christ, right? <laughs> Look with me in verse 46. I'm just giving us the, the, the reality of, of, of how Christ, the, the, very, the very sun that softens the wax through the Scriptures, and by the grace of God also hardens the clay in the human heart. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? For this man is performing many signs. Well, they conclude what they're going to do. Look down at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to Verse 53, they got to kill him. In fact, they not only have to kill him, looking over in chapter 12, verse 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. So we, we see the, the, the reality, how the, the, there is the unmasking of the true character of hard-hearted unbelief. It should cause you and I to just stop if God has opened your heart to the gospel by his amazing grace through hearing the gospel and the work of the Spirit bringing that to bear upon your heart and bringing repentance and faith. It should just cause you to stop and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Can you say amen to that? Just this hardness that takes place is just amazing. Now the context here with reference to chapter 11 we look back again in verse 39, no, excuse me, in verse 40, and we see where things were taking place prior to chapter 11, just to set the scene. And he, that is Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Now, most understand this, On then on the other side of the Jordan in this particular area, there's some dis- discussion as to the particular locale, but the approximate distance would be in the area of about 20 miles away where John the Baptist started his ministry in that particular area. So Jesus and his men have left Jerusalem. They are there in this particular area that is a distance away. And then in chapter 11, we're going to come back to near the city of Jerusalem again. In fact, we read in verse chapter 11, verse 1, now there was a man who was sick, Lazarus of, there it is, of Bethany. And again, our location now, close to Jerusalem itself, we're told in verse 18 of chapter 11. 18, chapter 11, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So what we're going to get is to the event in chapter 11 is back near, again, near Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem itself, but Jesus is approximately about 20 miles away from that locale at present. Now, in verses 1 through verse 16, that we're going to do our best to get through to today. 
John sets the scene as introduction to the event of raising Lazarus from the dead by giving us a threefold perspective as to the initial news about Lazarus. We're going to see a threefold perspective about this news concerning what is brought to Jesus concerning this dear person in his life, namely Lazarus. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see Mary and Martha's request. In verses 4 through 6, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about all that's going on. And what Jesus has to say is the most important perspective. And then in verses 7 down through verse 16, we're going to see his men's response to all that's going on, and we're going to see ourselves in these verses through his men who are constantly having to learn more about Christ and who he is and how, he's work, how he works, all preparing us for John's selective seventh sign miracle that puts his omnipotence, unlimited power as God on display. Okay, verses 1 through 3 now. Let's just come back to that. Here's what takes place, this first perspective from these two sisters concerning their brother. Now, let me just say right off, I'm convinced that Lazarus is their younger brother, though I can't prove it. Okay? So um, I'm just going to put that out there with reference to coming to their house earlier. It's referred to as Martha's home. And and I think this is especially uh, a, a great concern for these two because of how much they love their younger brother who's sick at this this time. But I I can't prove that, but um, I want you to believe it because I feel real strongly about it, okay? So they got a request going on here. If I'm wrong, okay. Now a certain man was sick. Here he is. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. And he wants to be sure you know who he's talking about here. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. So here we are back at Bethany, word from them, excuse me, from Mary and Martha concerning their brother. I believe it's fair to say that he's likely severely sick. That kind of would be implied here with that behold, the urgency of what's going on, or they wouldn't have sent word here. Serious condition. These two sisters know all about Jesus. They know his claims. They know his miracles. They, they don't ask him to come, but they convey to him the news concerning his condition. I think John expects you to know that Jesus has been there in their home more than one occasion. One is made reference to in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. You're familiar with this section, but I, for the sake of time, wanted to just put on, on the overhead. In Luke 10, now as they were traveling along, that's Christ and his men, he entered a village and a woman named Martha 
welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. I just love that. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And these are one of the times prior to this that Jesus is in their home. Matthew 21, 17 talks about another occasion that Jesus spent the night at Bethany, and I'm going to assume it was very likely there at their home, very likely. They may have had a a home large enough to not only have Jesus, but even his men catch their breath coming and going there at that, that location just on the other side, if you go outside of the city of Jerusalem toward the, S, uh, toward the east, you go down the Kidron Valley, you come up the Mount of Olives. On the other side of the Mount of Olives, then a two-mile distance, is that community from which they are at. Notice the text says, The sisters, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And it's that word, Phileo, not the word agape, but the word of phileo. Now, both express one is never at the exception of the other. But this is that word of family love. This is the word of friendship and affection that's true about brothers and sisters in the faith like you and I in the body of Christ. And they're, they're reminding him graciously, Jesus, whom you, you love, behold, he's sick, Now, you agree with me, they're expecting Jesus to do something. Can you say amen to that? They are, can one person say amen to that? Hey, he's sick, and you love him, and you love him. Notice they don't say, you better do something. Please notice they don't say, you better come right now. In fact, I would express this, I think, properly. They're making an appeal. They are presenting what's going on with Lazarus and their concern regarding him. I think we could call this even expression of their burden, putting their burden upon Christ, getting word to Jesus Christ. Best thing that we can do when things are going on that are of great concern in our lives is bring our concern, bring our burdens to him. And the Bible says that many times, does it not? Cast your burden upon the Lord and he'll sustain you. And it's from that Old Testament passage that Peter grabs hold of that in 1 Peter when he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you in due time. And at the same time, then he says, casting all your anxiety or cares upon him. Why? Everybody say the last part. Because he what? He cares for you as your heavenly father. Cares for his dear son, even his own son. We see it again, don't we, in Philippians 4, 6. Anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And here it is again. Let your requests be made known. And they are doing that with reference to Jesus and expecting him that he would do something. I think they were aware. There's other occasions he didn't even have to go somewhere to take care of something or heal someone, but just say the word. 
let your requests be made known to him. This is whom you love, Jesus. You love him, and they knew that. Well, there's a second perspective that's going on. And I said this is the main one, and it's what Jesus has to say about what's taking place, and that's in verses 4 and following, really, 4 through verse 6 for us. But when Jesus heard this, now I want to stop for a moment and remind us of the fact Jesus didn't need to hear anything. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus is in absolute control over all the events of every moment of his earthly ministry from beginning to end. So when John is telling you he gets word, Jesus didn't go, oh boy, we need to do something about that. He knows he, he has designed everything that's going to take place here, and he's going to tell you why in the next verses. But I want to remind you of that. He knows precisely he is in control of every second right up to the moment of his what? Of his hour. And that's why you read repeatedly, like we, like we did prior in chapter 10, they're coming to take him, and they think they're in control, and he just leaves their midst again. Why? He has total, absolute, sovereign control over the events and the timing of all that's taken place. He is absolutely sovereign in all things, and we're learning about that truth concerning God and all those other virtues and and attributes in the, in the first hour. Well, back to verse 4. This sickness, he says, but when Jesus hears this, he said, he's giving this message back to somebody that's traveled that approximate 20-mile distance to take this message back. And I'm certain that his disciples are hearing this likewise because he's always training them. But when then Jesus heard this, here's what he said. Take this message back. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Here's God's purpose and all that's going on. Here's Jesus' purpose and all that's taking place. Please note Jesus' words, this is not to end in death. So he was not saying that Lazarus was not going. There's a double negative, but you know what I'm saying. He's not asserting that Lazarus isn't going to die. Lazarus is going to die. In fact, before this messenger gets back, likely Lazarus is already dead. And I know that's so because Warren Wiersbe says so, and I agree with him. I'm going to give you just kind of the four-day span because we catch in verse 17, there's a four-day period before Jesus has determined he will go back to Bethany. But this is not to end in death. Or in other words, the final end or outcome of Lazarus' illness is not going to be his death. And his men hear that. Now I wonder what they're thinking. This is the message that they're, going to, that they're going to take back, and I think it's rightly so. When we get to verse 17, it says, When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. And it doesn't mean that Jesus all, all of a sudden discovered that. He had ordained that. But uh, I think Wearsby uh, helps us here with just the basic schedule events that are taking place. He says the schedule events would look something like this, allowing one day for the travel 
Then day one, the messenger comes to Jesus with this news. Lazarus dies. Day two, the messenger returns to Bethany. Day three, Jesus waits another day, then heads from that area on the other side of the Jordan back to Bethany. Day four, Jesus then arrives there at the point of all of this is taking place. And when the messenger then arrives back home, he would find Lazarus already dead. But what is this sign miracle then really all about? His work here with what he's going to do, what is going to take place. And he tells us, doesn't he, in verse 4, this is all about putting God's glory on display. Notice again how the text reads this. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The purpose of what Jesus will do in raising Lazarus from the dead is for God to be glorified, that is, for him to be seen and honored as God. How? In the Son. The Father is glorified through the Son, and the Son's purpose in everything that he does was to reveal and exalt and honor the Father. Bring glory to him. And God's glory, then, is seen and evident in his Son, the Lord Jesus, who revealed the absolute majesty and holiness and all these attributes that we're being reminded of in the person of Jesus Christ. So turn back with me to chapter 1, just to read verse 14. One fourteen, And if you would like to do a personal study on your own as the greatest and grandest, most significant theme in all of the Scriptures, do it on the glory of God. And we've sang the glory of God. We've sang, we've prayed to God's glory already this morning, and rightly so, because all is ultimately to be unto his praise and his honor and his worship and our lives to his glory. One fourteen. You didn't need to turn there, but I want to remind you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw or we beheld his glory, his divine nature. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, only one like him from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Turn to chapter 2, first miracle, creation miracle, turning water to wine. Chapter 2, verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. There it is again. And we could just keep noting those passages that keep referring to the reality of how Jesus Christ and what he is doing is demonstrating his glory and at the same time always working in conjunction with the Father is the Son to bring glory to the Father and the Father getting glory in the Son. And all things are going to ultimately renown to his glory. MacArthur says God's glory is the most important theme in all of the universe. It is the underlying reason for all of his works. Everything he made and all that he does is all for his glory. For his glory. Beakey and Cosby say in their book on attributes, God's glory is the display of all his perfections. As the sun shines beams of light, 
So God's character shines beams of his glory. Moses wanted to see it, didn't he? Show me your glory. And yet the whole world renounced to it. The heavens are telling of God's glory. Their expanse declaring the works of his hands. Psalmist likewise says in Psalm 57, verse 11, Be exalted among the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all of the earth. And because God's glory, because his glory is intrinsic alone and unique to God himself, other things reflect his glory, but only God is truly glorious. And he will not be robbed of his glory or share it with another. And so Isaiah says, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. An example of that taking place is in Acts chapter 12. Remember this event? On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people, and the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. And most of all, most of all, in this glory revealed in the person of Christ, his glory, God's glory, and Christ's glory is revealed in the work of Christ. Not only the miracles and sign miracles that we see, but most of all, glory is revealed in the cross and in redemption. And I want you to take your Bible and turn with me over into that incredible statement by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul speaks of this unbelievable truth of God even choosing his own before the foundation of the world to be trophies of his magnificent grace. Now, you might be saying we're kind of getting off that event onto the glory of God, and I want to say to you this morning, there'll never be a time we get off of anything better than to consider God's glory. Whether you eat or whether you drink, what? Do all to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're there, could you just say amen? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. By the way, 3 through verse, uh, through verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Over to verse 11. 
Also we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, in him also you have listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of, his, of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. All to the glory, all to the glory of our God. Where is this glory really to be evident in the world today? Well, we see it in creation and all things, but ultimately today is to be seen seen in one primary place. Place, I already mentioned to that effect, but turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20. I love these verses. As Paul has prayed for the Ephesians, he says in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly or beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works with within us. To him be the glory in the church. Not a steeple, but a people. Where is the glory to be seen today? In the church, in God's people, living for him, loving him, worshiping him, following his word, obedient lives, pursuing, as we heard this morning, pursuing holiness holiness. And there it is. We're to do all that we do with God in mind, that that God would be magnified, that he would be honored, that he would be pleased. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We could just get lost in this theme, could we not? And when we step back, when we just take a step back and we ask, what is the end game in all of this? What's the ultimate plan from the beginning, Genesis 1, to the end in the Revelation? To the consummation of all things, what's the big deal in all of this? And it is this. Ultimately, past, present, future, and all of that, God exceeds all of that in eternity past and eternity future from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, All is going to be seen, ultimately is going to be praised, ultimately it's going to be all given to him. As Paul says in Romans 11, that it's all from him and through him and to him, to him be all glory, and all of his people said, yes, amen. All to the glory of God. This redemptive plan, this creation, all of it. I'm reading right now daily in the Revelation, and it's just mind-blowing what's going on with reference to these judgments and the bold judgments. But at the same time, there is this reality that you see the throne of God and you see the Lamb, and it's just worship going on because the worship is to continually bring glory in all eternity to him. And what we're going to do then is what we're to do now in how we live our lives in worship to him to his glory. John says in verse 11, verse 5, he says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And I think he mentions that because in the next verse, he says, so when he heard that, he was sick that he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He's reminding us, yes, Jesus really does love Lazarus even though he's staying 
two more days. And the beauty of verse 5 is now he doesn't use the word phileo, he uses the word agape. This is the word of sacrifice. This, this is the word of the love that's going to take place. The basis that he would give life to Lazarus is what Jesus is going to do in the cross and the offering of his life. Because you know that agape love is the love of sacrifice that's willing to lay down your life for the good of others. This kind of love gives and it serves and it costs and it sacrifices and that's where it's going to be heading long past chapter 11 in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where they were to stay. And if you would stop there and you didn't know the rest of the story, you might say, well, wait a minute. If he really loves, verse 5, if he really loves Lazarus, why wouldn't he act immediately? Or why wouldn't he have head to Bethany right away the moment he got this message? And I want to give you the short answer. And the short answer is this, because he's God in flesh. And while you may think he's to do one thing, he does the best thing. Because we heard he's righteous. He does the best thing. He works in the believer's life all things together for what? Good to those he loves, to those he has called according to his purpose. Make us more like Jesus Christ. So I think everything here should be put under what's going on with Jesus and his men are trying to figure this out. I want you to turn with me back to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to turn to chapter 55 because it's such a good reminder for us in terms of how God works. How he works. And I think oftentimes with reference to how God works in terms of his timing, what he does, when he does it, and how he does it, we're like toddlers. We're toddlers. We have much revealed in the scriptures, but bottom line is there's mystery to what's going on oftentimes. But God knows what he's doing. His timing, his plan, his working is always, always perfect in every way. And in Isaiah chapter 55, we've got this great invitation in verse 1. Everyone who thirsts comes to the water. He's living water, by the way. Jesus is living water. Come to the water and you have no money. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Verse 7. Here's how to do that. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. If you write in your Bible, write by verse 7 the word repent. Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Always happens in conversion. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have what? He will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Paul says in Romans 10, what? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says this, verse 8 and 9, this is where I was heading. This is where we need to remember with reference to how God works. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as as the heaven are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your words, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is infinitely wise. We are not. How's this all going on here? We're going to see. The men are wondering, what's all going on? I just want to say, based on the fact that he is infinitely wise and infinitely good, then he is always worthy of our trust in whatever it is that he is doing. Can you say amen to that? Because who knows what he's doing in your life right now? But he's not ceased to love you in the cross. And he is working good. He's told us that. And his timing is perfect in all things to his ultimately, to his to his glory. Well, then we've got that third perspective in verses 7 through verse 16, and it's his men. It's 11 o'clock, and all of that was just introduction just to get to the response of his men. But we'll move quick, and you are going to just all say together right now, uh, preach on, Pastor. Go ahead and say it right now. That was fairly good. Now, God knows your heart concerning that right now. But I just want you to see that. I want you to see how, how much they lacked understanding in what he was doing. You ever sing that little chorus, he's still working on me? <laughs> there, there, there are so often there are times his, his men's perspective on what's taking place. Notice in verse 7, then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the wor- this world. And if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now notice in verses 6 and 7, he says, here we go back. And they're saying what? They were just trying to what? Seize you in order to kill you. Can you just see them having a little sidebar and the guys getting together and talking about Jesus, maybe saying, does he really know what's going on here? And I wonder if they, have to, they had to draw straws. And the one with the short straw had to go and say, now, Jesus, wait a minute. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there? And and, and certainly they're not only concerned about him, but if they go with him, they're concerned about them. What are you doing? They often lack depth of understanding what's going on. And certainly right here, they forget, even back in chapter 2, even just previously when he's there, they came to seize him, verse 39 says, and he eluded their grasp. Have they not figured out yet now who is in control? Have I not yet figured out who's in control of my life? Often they just lacked spiritual insight. He told them they were to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents. To have wisdom and insight that comes from God and from his word. They use this this metaphor of light and darkness. It would make you think about 1 John, wouldn't it? But Jesus reminds his men that walking in the light of God's will, in the light of the day, is the safest way to carry out God's plan and God's work. Outside of his will, outside of his plan for Christ, outside of that, 
outside of the will of God for your life, which is the Word of God, is dangerous. MacArthur always seems to say these things best. So let me quote him here for what Jesus is saying in these verses. During the light of the sun, most people did their work safely. When darkness came, they stopped. Right. The proverbial proverbial saying, however, had a deeper meaning. As long as the son performed his father's will during the daylight period of his ministry, when he is able to work, he was safe. The time would soon come, nighttime, when by God's design, his earthly work would end and he would stumble in, in death. Jesus was emphasizing that as long as he was on earth doing God's will, even at this late time in his ministry, he would safely complete God's purpose. And for you and I, the reminder is that the safety there is in terms of God care for his own is to walk in light of his word and his truth. And the good shepherd take care of you. The dangerous place that we can live is outside of the will of God and the word of God. But notice also, he mentions Lazarus' condition. Verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And then the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. He'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, you remember back in verse 4? This sickness is not to end in what? It's not to end in death. They lacked understanding to what's going on with reference to Lazarus. You say, well, when he said sleep, they would think literally about sleep. But they also knew the background of the Old Testament that oftentimes that concept of sleep was with reference to those who belonged to the Lord and, and had died. In second, First and Second Kings, 27 times we read, and David slept with his fathers and was buried. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried, and so on. One king after another. So this concept is not foreign to them. That's why Jesus said, finally, verse 14, that you might believe. Verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go on to him. Often they just lacked insight into what he was doing, and they certainly needed to be strengthened in their faith. And when he says that in verse 15, so that you may believe, it is an active verb that you might see and that you might believe again because soon Jesus is going to be gone and they're going to be preaching a message that in Jesus Christ there is life. And they needed to be strengthened in that message. And then we got verse 16 that expresses to these men that, that, can I say that they wanted to be they, they want to be faithful to the end. At least I think that that's where Thomas is coming from. Look at verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, that is the twin, he said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. Now, we don't have the tone of that, do we? I was reading one commentary and he said, Thomas is Eeyore. Thomas is just, well, we're going to die anyhow. Let's go with him. 
I want to take his statement at face value. I want to take it at face value. Now, Thomas is a pessimist, isn't he? Unless I see, I won't, I won't believe. I, I, I get that. But I want to take it at face value. And I want to take it, that is, in his pessimism, is that a word? You know I tried. He tends to believe what they've already concluded. It's dangerous to go. But I want to believe that in his love for the Savior, he desires to follow him no matter what. And if that isn't so, it still should be so of you and I. Our friend again thinks that so. He says, Thomas was a doubting man, but we must confess that he was a devoted man. He was willing to go with Jesus into danger and risk his own life. We may not admire his faith, but we can certainly applaud his loyalty and his courage. But also in knowing that, we are reminded of the fact that while the spirit is very willing, the flesh is often very weak. And they are going to scatter later. But he wanted to be faithful. And I want to ask you this morning, is that your heart? You want to be faithful to him no matter what he has for you. Yeah, there's some mystery in all this is going on. There's a hymn. I'm going to close with this. There's a hymn of one of the many that this man wrote that struggled with all that God was doing in his life, and his name is William Cooper. And he wrote, oh man, he wrote, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood. He, he wrote, it's amazing, he wrote wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. And yet the man lacked peace in his own life. He struggled with depression. He was a lawyer. He was brilliant. But even to appear before the bar, whoever that was that he had to defend what he, what he knew, he just, he just flipped out over that. He tried to take his own life. And, and he would often minister to his own soul by writing hymns. And in the good providence of God, and God's providence is good, he, he likewise ended up the last 20 years of his life was under the uh, ministry of John Newton. How about that? And I'm convinced that Newton surely had to minister to the man's heart on a regular basis. But he wrote these words, and I wanted to close with his words. It is a song, likewise, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Yet fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, Oh, but sweet will be the flower. He knows what he's doing. What he's doing is always best and always right, whether you see it or not, and he will always be worthy of your trust. And when you trust him, you will glorify him. Amen? Let's bow in prayer for that fact. Oh, Father.
We thank you for the feast that we have in your word. The wonder that we have in a God who is just and holy and righteous and good, patient, merciful, loving, just. And when we get to the end of it all and we read in the Revelation, the throne, around the throne, to the Lamb and to the throne, it's all glory, it's all worship, it's all praise. And your glory is revealed in what you've done in Christ. A glory of a price to redeem us out of and from our sin to a Savior. Thank you for what you've done. And thank you for working in hearts through your word, through your word this day. Perhaps even drawing someone to him, to you, to you. Who alone is the answer to life, that is Jesus Christ. Came that you might have life. And that they might take you by faith, turning from themselves, from sin, and to Jesus even right now and receive the promise of life and life eternal. Such would glorify you. May our lives glorify you, even the rest of this day and in the days to come, until Christ comes. In his name we pray all this glory to him and all of his people said, Amen.